You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, uh, we are hearing God speak. Today's passage is 1 Peter 2, 11 to 25. So please uh, turn there in your hard copy or digital version and please follow along. 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires That wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors as to those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor. With God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Gracious God, we ask this day that as we look uh, at your word in 1 Peter, that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So here's my question. Uh, When you're faced with danger, what's your natural impulse? When you're faced with danger, what's your natural impulse? Is it fight or is it 
flight. When that menacing greyhound runs towards you, when your supervisor gives you that negative feedback, how do you naturally react? What wells up within you? Where does the adrenaline drive you? You know, for some people, when the adrenaline kicks in, we fight, we hit back. You know, we wrestle the greyhound to the ground. Or we immediately start arguing back against our supervisor, telling him or her why they're wrong. And actually, why? No, you've totally misunderstood it. I'm very competent at my job. But for others of us, when the adrenaline kicks in, we don't fight, we flee. We step back. We run away from that greyhound. We immediately then start planning our next career change. When faced with danger, I wonder what your natural impulse is. Is it fight or is it flight? And in many ways, that's the problem facing these exiles here in 1 Peter, right? Under that low-level, ongoing social rejection, they face two great temptations. Fight or flight. Hit back against the hatred and hostility or step back from the persecution and pressure. But in this letter, Peter has been wanting to show us a third way a different way, a better way, don't fight, don't flee, stand firm. Don't fight, don't flee, stand firm. And that's why in this first part of the letter, he's been laying the deep foundations of our identity. Because if you and I know who we truly are, we won't succumb to the pressures of this world. It won't matter what the world says about us. And I wonder if you noticed over the last few weeks that who we are is anchored in who God is. We are chosen by God. We are children of God. We are holy like God. And we are honored by God. The only way to stand firm in who we are is first to stand firm in who God is. Our Creator our Redeemer, and our Judge. You see, everything in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, focused on who we are. And now, everything from chapters 2, verse 11 to 5, verse 11, shows us how we must live. How we should stand firm in the grace of God. And verses 11 and 12 are like that headline that tells us the answer, and the rest just unpacks it in every other way. Peter says, how do I stand firm in the grace of God? By standing firm in doing what is good. Stand firm in doing what is good. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. As strangers and exiles, Peter calls us to say two things. Number one, say no to loving sin. And number two, say yes to doing good. Say no to loving sin and say yes to doing good. Say no to the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Those desires of chapter 1 verse 14 of our former ignorance. Don't run back to the sinful love of success, sex and self which marked your life before Christ. Leave behind those destructive addictions that satisfy us in the moment but kill us in the long run. Because those past addictions wage war against our souls. They shell our hearts in a war of attrition. And like relentless waves that crash upon a rock, 
they slowly reshape our affections. Say no to loving sin. Instead, say yes to doing good. You know, that simple word, that one simple word, good, is Peter's favourite way of describing the Christian life. In no less than nine different places, he calls us to do what is good, even if it costs us everything. You know, uh, I, I used to think when I was younger and I started out working that if Christians lived good gospel lives, then we would be loved by everyone around us. I used to think that our commitment to doing good will be recognized and praised by all of our unbelieving friends and family. And there's some truth to that, right? We'll see that later in this letter, but it's only half the picture. Because I want you to see verse 12, what Peter says. If we stand firm in doing good, we actually won't be respected. We'll be rejected. We'll be slandered as evildoers. That's a shocking reality check, right? If we stand firm in doing good, the world will call us bad. It almost reminds me of Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, where Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do you see what he's saying? This is a world of moral inversion, where the gospel good of committed marriage, fulfilled singleness, or the dignity of the unborn are seen as repressive, regressive, and oppressive. You see, if we stand firm in doing what is truly good, we should actually expect rejection, not respect. But I want you to notice there is a glimmer, but more than a glimmer, a a wonderful hope at the end of verse 12. If we stand firm in doing good, we should also expect that those who slander us might just glorify God on the day he visits. Do you remember last week back in verse 8, Peter said that those who reject God today will be proven wrong and shamed on that last day. But here in verse 12, he shows us the corresponding hope that some might actually see our good lives and turn to God in faith. It's remarkable when you think about it. If we stand firm in doing good, our lives can actually lead our oppressors to salvation in the Lord Jesus. You know, if I'm being persecuted for, doing, for, for the gospel, my natural temptation will be to flee. I'm a coward, I'll own it, right? My natural temptation is to step back from doing good to run away from the life that invites the slander of this world. But if I know that my commitment to doing good might actually lead my slanderer to salvation, guess what? I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop doing what's good because I know that if I continue to stand firm in doing what's good, this hostile unbeliever might actually be saved. That they might just be like that Roman centurion, who moments after crucifying the Lord Jesus, see how Jesus breathes his last, and what does he declare? Truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, friends, whatever the cost, we must stand firm in doing good. And who knows? 
who knows? Maybe God might even use our good to make his enemies his friends. But you might sit there and go, Adam, that's lovely, but what exactly does it mean to do good? Good is such an intangible word, isn't it? Every time we think God is good, God is good. We think God is generically positive. God is generically positive. We don't actually know what good means. But when we look down at verse 17, we find a concrete picture of what that good is. What does it look like to live as God's good people in this world? And here's the answer, right? If we stand firm in doing good, our lives will be marked by three key words. Honour, love, and fear. Honour, love, and fear. Honour everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God. You see, friends, if we stand firm in doing good, we will fear God and live every moment in the security of his power and love. If we stand firm in doing good, we will love our brothers and sisters as those who have been born again together with us. But you know, throughout this series, you might have been wondering, Adam, what about the non-Christians around us? I get it how I should relate to God. I get it how I should relate to everyone here at church and with other Christians. But how should I do good towards my unbelieving family and friends? I mean, I genuinely love them, right? They're they're my flesh and blood. They're the people I spend time with. But they're not Christian. It's a different sort of love. It's a human love. It's a genuine love. But it's not a gospel love. You see, friends, we might be bound by blood and affection, but we're not bound by the Spirit. So if I've got non-Christian mates, how do I relate to them? If I'm in a family with non-Christian parents or non-Christian children, how should I relate to them? If I'm at work surrounded by non-Christians, how should I relate to them? And Peter uses one word. Honor. Honor. Treat them with dignity and respect. And if we're in a relationship where there are particular responsibilities, honour those relationships and honour those responsibilities. And I want us to see now how Peter unpacks what that looks like for two groups of people, Christian citizens and Christian slaves. Christian citizens and Christian slaves. Let's firstly look at Christian citizens. I know that most people, your average Australian, really doesn't care that much about politics. And with a few key exceptions here, I suspect that's true of most of you as well. We just want to mind our own business, don't we? We just want to get on with living. But I want to suggest that actually politics matters. Government matters. I mean, what will you do, right? Let me ask. What would you do if our government passes a law that prohibits preaching the gospel of repentance? What will you do if the government imposes a school curriculum that teaches our children a damaging and damning sexual ethic? I I I use those two examples because I actually suspect over the next few decades, those examples may just increasingly become realities. And if they do, if that moment comes, what will you do? What should we do when, just like these Christian exiles here in 1 Peter, our government brings on the persecution and the pressure? Well, in chapter 4, verse 17, Peter says something we wouldn't expect. 
honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Treat our government with respect and dignity. Verse 13, submit to every human authority. You know, there are a few words that these days people call trigger words, right? And submission has got to be one of them. When you see that word, all of us just either cringe or flinch. Oh, gosh. If you're a Christian, you brought your non-Christian mate today, you think, wrong week. Uh, If you're not a Christian, you think, oh, gosh, really? And if you're honest, you all go, really? Now, we need to be really clear about what the word submit actually means. And we don't know what it doesn't mean because, let's face it, it's laden with negative connotations, isn't it? Submission sounds like subordination or subjugation. It almost sounds abusive. It almost sounds as if Peter's saying, you know what, it doesn't matter what you're going through, I want you to forcibly suppress your will under the rule of a wicked government. But I want to show us, and I want to unpack this just for a moment, what Peter actually means when he uses that word submission. It's one of those awkward moments where there's no real easy English word for the original word. If you speak another language, you'll know that there are those words in the language that you speak, where you try and find the right English word for it, but nothing seems to quite do the job. And that's the case with this word. The word is hupatasso, and it means to willingly place ourselves in an ordered relationship. To willingly place ourselves in an ordered relationship. Now, that might sound so intangible and abstract to you. So let's work with some examples for a moment. Many of our relationships in life have an order or a structure. I'll take parents and children, for example. Uh, Parents have an expected role to do what? To raise their children, right? And their children have an expected role to follow their parents. That's the order of their relationship. And if the child comes along and starts telling their parents how to live, instructing them, you know, mum, thanks for your advice. Uh, Let me tell you actually what's a much better way to live. In all my years of experience, you've got it wrong. I suspect she's going to go, are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're my, you know, you're my child, you're my son? Or teachers, there are many of them here. Your, your job, your ordered relationship is to instruct and teach students, isn't it? But, but what happens, Shin, if one of your students comes up and says, you know what, Mr. Chen, actually, you know what, Shin? Don't even care. I'm going to tell you what maths is really about. Now, don't ask me to finish that sentence. I know nothing, right? That's the order of your relationship, to instruct and to learn. Let's stretch the idea a little bit. Uh, It's hard for us in the West to really grapple with this, because I want you to know in the West, everyone calls themselves by their first names. It doesn't matter. I went to uni, and I was like, oh, hello, associate professor, whatever, and they're like, just call me Bob. And I'm like, no. Uh, (laughs) Certain cultures, there's order in every relationship. At the risk of offending some of you, in Korea, if I'm a young guy addressing an older guy, what do I call him? Does anyone know? I call him Hyung, right? But if I'm a girl, I call him Oppa. But if if I'm a guy addressing an older girl, I call her Nunna. But if I'm a girl, I call her Onni, right? Who I am is defined in relation to, well, who I am in relation to who they are will determine the order of our relationship. And then the order of our relationship will determine the respect that I give them. It's it's in some cases, with some cultures, the expectation is on all people, all children, to honor their parents. But if you're the eldest son, you've got a special expected responsibility to provide for your parents in their older age. Now, as I said, we don't really get this as much in the West because we call everyone by their first name. We just take the approach to disrespect all, which is much nicer. But but we're all the same, right? Right? 
But in most other cultures, actually, relationships have order. Relationships have structure. Relationships have honour. And in many of those cultures, we understand seniority isn't the same as superiority. And on the flip side, submission isn't the same as subjugation. Submission really just means to willingly place ourselves in that ordered relationship, to preserve the structure of that relationship, to play our part as a Christian under authority. And that's, what, that's all that Peter is calling these Christian exiles to do. He's saying, play your part in society as a good citizen. Uphold the integrity of the government. Honour the emperor. Now, don't fear him. Fear God. But honour him. Now, I want you to imagine, if you were one of these Christian exiles, how you must have felt reading these words. Peter, you're asking me to honour and submit to the very emperor who's persecuting and pressuring me. I mean, as I said before, my natural fear impulse or my natural threat impulse is flight. But maybe yours is fight, to hit back, to step up. But Peter says, don't fight. Don't flee, stand firm. Stand firm in doing good. Don't mount a rebellion. Don't incite an uprising. Submit. And what that means is, in the main, in the main, Christians aren't rebels, separatists, or dissidents. And we, should, and we should speak about our governments with respect and, and honour, even if we didn't vote for them. Because we are a people who stand firm in doing good, even when faced with evil. Let alone when faced with a political party we don't like. Now you might read all this and you might sit there and wonder, Adam, does that mean we should unquestioningly obey our government in every single circumstance? And I want to say, well, most of the time, submitting will mean obeying. But not always. Not always. One of the sordid stains on the German church is its historic support of the Third Reich. Submission does not mean unquestioning obedience to our government. I want you to look carefully at verses 15 to 16. You'll notice that this is one of those sermons where you really need your Bible open, as you should every week. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. There's that phrase. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Can you see what Peter's saying, right? Our submission should never make us complicit with sin. And our primary calling is to do good whatever the cost. And that means that if our government calls us to sin, we actually must not obey. We must stand firm in doing good. You know, the great irony of verse 14 is that these Christian exiles are probably experiencing the uh, very opposite reality. They're not being praised for doing good. They're most likely being punished for doing good. And yet Peter says, don't stop. Don't stop doing good. Don't step back from it. Stand firm in doing good. You see, friends, put it this way. Submission actually takes two forms. It ordinarily means honoring and obeying those above us. That's what it ordinarily means. But if those above us command us to sin, it means disobeying and willingly bearing the cost of doing what is good. Submission means willingly bearing the cost of doing what is good. So for the German church, it would have meant protecting the Jewish people and willingly bearing the risk of being caught. And it may even have justified, if not demanded, taking active steps to stop the perpetrators of that evil. 
Why? Why? Why should we submit to our government? Well, the answer is right there in verses 13 and 16. Because of the Lord. Not Caesar, but the Lord. Because we're God's slaves, not His. Because, I love this line, we're free people. And we use our freedom not for evil, but for good. You see what this means, friends? It means that the world might slander us as evildoers, but our submission shows that we're a people who are actually committed to doing what's good. In that sense, verse 15 says, our submission silences our accusers. Our submission silences our accusers. And if doing good demands that we disobey, as it from time to time may, knowing that we belong to the Lord, not Caesar, frees us to willingly bear the cost. Caesar might command us to sin. The government might command us to be complicit with evil, but we say, with great respect, you are not my creator. You are not my redeemer. You are not my judge. God is. And I will do what I must. You know, friends, over the coming decades, I suspect that we will, as a church, increasingly face moments where we must continue to submit, but it will be increasingly difficult to obey. At present, it's already unlawful in this state to support someone who's experiencing same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria to pursue holiness under God. You can't pray for them. You, You can't encourage them to keep living faithfully, even if they ask for that prayer and help. That prohibition applies to absolutely everyone without exception, including parents to their own children. And I wonder, under such pressure, what will we do? It's so easy, isn't it, to fight or to flee, to hit back or to step back. But Peter says, stand firm. Stand firm in doing good. Yes, honour the emperor, submit to the government, but if we cannot obey, willingly bear the cost of doing what is good. Whatever that might be. Don't fight. Don't flee. Stand firm with the assurance that God, not Caesar, is your creator, your redeemer, and your judge. But what about for Christian slaves? What about Christian slaves? How were they to relate to their masters? If they were a Christian exile who was a slave under an unbelieving master, how should they relate to them? How should they honor them? How should they do good to them? And in many ways, the answer is simple. It's exactly the same in verse 18. Submit. Remember what that means. Show your master honor and respect. Willingly place yourself within that order. Preserve the structure of the relationship. Play your part as a Christian under authority. And even if your master is cruel, don't fight. Don't hit back. If he commands you to sin, submit but do not obey. Stand firm in doing good, whatever the cost. That's why in verse 19, Peter says that the suffering of these Christian slaves is unjust. In verse 20, he assumes that they're suffering for the very reason that they are standing firm in doing good against the wishes of their master. Because if they went along with their master, they wouldn't be suffering. 
Now, we might read these verses, and I know what the obvious question is, isn't it? And we'll encounter it again next week. Does all this mean that Christian slaves must tolerate physical abuse? Does all this mean that Christian slaves must tolerate physical abuse? Because if that's true, how in the world can God be good? Now, let me respond with three observations. Firstly, I want you to notice that when Peter mentions being beaten physically in verse 20, he's writing in the context of Christians doing wrong, not good. That's, that's supposed to be what not happens rather than what happens. But he's calling them to endure suffering for doing good. And suffering throughout this letter is that low-level, ongoing social rejection, not physical abuse. That's not what we're talking about here. He is not asking these slaves to tolerate being physically beaten. Secondly, when we look more broadly in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, the Apostle Paul encourages slaves to actually take the opportunity to become free if they can. Paul doesn't want us to remain as slaves. And thirdly, in 2 Corinthians 11.20, Paul says, rather ironically, it's foolish for us to put up with being enslaved, exploited, or abused. If we're in that situation, the wise thing to do is to remove ourselves from those situations if we can. Let me be very clear. The Bible does not tolerate abuse of any kind. And if you're in that situation, please remove yourself from it or seek help to do so. What Peter's saying is, as you do, don't fight. Don't hit back. Submission does not mean allowing yourself to be physically beaten. It means willingly bearing the slander of doing what is good. You know, if you're the fight impulse over the flight impulse, it's so tempting and so easy to hit back, isn't it? To retaliate and do to the other person what they've done to you. You insult me, I'll insult you back. You hit me, I'll hit you back. But that's exactly what Peter says we shouldn't do. We should be people who submit to those above us by first honoring the relationship, but if not, by willingly bearing the cost of doing what is good. Now, some of you might read this, and you might go, aha, Christian slaves, that's my job. I feel like a slave. But I can guarantee you that you just cannot draw a straight line between what's going on here and what's going on at work. You might feel like slavery, but it's just employment. Ancient slavery was a working relationship of powerless, vulner powerlessness, vulnerability, and control. Again, you might be thinking, still, me, right? But you can actually choose our job. We can change our job. They couldn't. We can't just draw a straight line between their slavery and our work. We should actually be thankful for our work, thankful for employment, thankful for income. But these truths still have implications for how to live, not, maybe not as Christian slaves, but as Christian workers. They still have some bearing on how we live. You know, at first instance, submission means honoring those above us. It simply means being a good worker. Christians under authority are those who work hard, turn up on time, keep our word, and speak with respect. It's a bit on the nose to say this, but... You might be managed for your competence, but we shouldn't be disciplined for our conduct. Now, ideally, work hard and don't be managed for your competence, but it may happen, right? But surely we as the people of God should not be disciplined for our conduct. 
But honoring those above us also means that if they call us to sin, to do wrong, to act immorally or unethically, actually we must not obey. We must stand firm in doing what is good. If we're asked to lie for our boss, to act for an unconscionable client, or if we see a colleague being mistreated, no, we must speak up, stand firm and do whatever, do good, whatever the cost may be. I suspect, though, this operates on a much more simple and banal level for many of us. You see, many Christians take on jobs that might not ask us to do wrong. We just take on jobs that ask us to give everything. In many ways, we enslave ourselves to jobs that demand our souls. But here's my question. Are we willing to bear the cost of working a job, potentially with a lower pay or less prestige, so that we actually have the time and energy to do good in our work at church and with our family and friends. You see, friends, as Christians under authority, Peter calls us to submit by standing firm in doing good, whatever the cost may be. Are we willing to bear it? Because that's the example of our Lord Jesus. Just look at verse 22. Peter quotes Isaiah 53. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his his mouth. He didn't fight back. He didn't hit back. They insulted him. He doesn't insult them back. They hit him. He didn't hit back. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He feared God. He trusted that as his judge, God would one day come and vindicate his innocence and judge the wicked as his persecutors. Friends, there is a model for you and me. As we suffer for doing good, we are called to imitate Christ. But that's the purpose for which Jesus has saved us. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that why? Having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Jesus bore our sins so that we might live for righteousness. Jesus gave his life so that we might stand firm in doing good. And we can confidently live for righteousness. We can confidently do good, whatever the cost may be. Because we have returned to the safety of the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Isn't that beautiful? When we feel all alone as the only Christian at work as the only Christian on campus, as the only Christian at school, as the only Christian at home, as the only Christian among our friends, we can know that actually in all of that, we are safely kept by the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He protects us like a shepherd protects his sheep and like a guardian protects his charge. We're under his care, under his protection. So now we're free to live for righteousness, whatever the cost may be. Do your worst. I will do what I must. You see, friends, we need not fear any master. We need not fear any power. We need only fear our Lord. If you're you're not a Christian, I I really hope you know this. That turning to Jesus, becoming a Christian, isn't just about escaping the fires of hell, important though that may be. It's about being saved for something greater. To live for righteousness. To do what is good. But even more precious than that. Being a Christian isn't so much about what we're saved from. It's about who we're saved for. Turning to Jesus is about returning to the shepherd of our souls. 
Returning to Jesus is about returning to the shepherd of our souls. Will you come to him? Will you come home? Will you find in him the protection, the safety, the security that no one can ever offer? Fellow Christian, the cross is the ultimate symbol of submission, is it not? For on the cross, what did Jesus do? He willingly bore the ultimate cost of doing the ultimate good. He died so that we might live. And he calls us to imitate him. I don't know about you, but I am so naturally self-interested. I'm happy to do good, provided that it doesn't cost me too much. But that's not how Jesus did good for us. It costed him everything. It costed him his life. And we we didn't deserve a shred of his goodness. Are we willing to bear the cost of doing good just like our master? Are we willing to suffer for standing firm in doing good, whatever the cost may be? In World War II, uh, there was a German Christian who was willing to do just that. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Hitler rose to power in 1933, uh, Bonhoeffer was actually living quite safely in America at the time. He could have chosen to live out his days in the safety of the United States, but instead he chose to return to Germany. And you think, why? Why would you do that? You know the risk. You know the, re- the threat. Why go back? Because he was committed to doing good. Bonhoeffer ended up as a key member of the resistance, and he even conspired in a plot to overthrow the Third Reich. Now, at face value, that sounds totally inconsistent with Peter's call to submit, doesn't it? You might think, isn't that just a fight impulse? Are you just hitting back rather than standing firm? But no, I think in such an extreme circumstance, Bonhoeffer knew what true submission really looked like. It meant standing firm in doing good, whatever the cost. And as he saw Hitler's Third Reich commit horrific atrocities against the Jewish people, he resolved that the great good would be to end the great evil. And he was willing to bear the great cost of doing that great good. And he did. In 1940, he was captured. He was imprisoned. And he was executed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer paid the great cost of doing such a great good to defeat such a great evil. And as we look at someone like that, gosh, we ask, don't we, did he not walk in the footsteps of our Lord? Did he not follow the way of our Master? He, our Lord Jesus, who paid the ultimate cost of doing the ultimate good to defeat the ultimate evil. So as we look to heroes of the faith like Bonhoeffer, But more and more as we look to our Lord Jesus Christ, may we be willing to live as Jesus lived. May we be willing to walk in his footsteps. May we be willing to follow his ways. To stand firm in honoring everyone. To stand firm in submitting to those above us. But most of all, may we be willing to stand firm in doing good, whatever the cost may be. Why don't I pray?
Gracious Heavenly Father, we think about the cost that the Lord Jesus paid to save us. We think about the fact that when he was insulted, he did not insult back. When he was hit, he was not hit back. He bore the ultimate cost to do the ultimate good, to defeat the ultimate evil. He gave his life to save us and defeat the powers of sin and death. Teach us to live as he lived in our work, in our society, to stand firm in honoring all people and to stand firm in doing good, whatever the cost may be. We pray these things for his sake. Amen.